Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about theranostics and clinical trials for GI cancers with Dr. Gabriella Spielberg. Dr. Spielberg is an assistant professor of radiology and biomedical imaging at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Gabriella, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. So, uh, I started nuclear medicine basically in about 2018 when I went to train at Dana-Farber in Boston. And I didn't know much about it when I first got in contact with this interesting field. Um, I'm originally from Brazil, and uh, I trained previously in Brazil. And in Brazil, this was not something that was widely available or um, very much uh, in practice back then. So when I came here and I first encountered this field where you were not re- looking at anatomic structures, but you were looking at molecular processes and what was happening at the cellular level. That really intrigued me, and it really changed at how you see imaging and everything around imaging. And then back in 2018 was about when the um, one of the big drugs for neuroendocrine cancer was approved. So this was a big... Uh, talk in the background. And when you see that things are not really just a visual structure, but you can see what's happening, it just changed my whole conception about what imaging could be and what was happening. So that's what got me so interested. And um, when I decided that there was no really a step back into this field because this was just the next level and what the future will be. It was very clear to me that this was my path. So I stayed at Dana-Farber for about two years and that's when I really uh, had a very extensive experience and a deep dive into what was happening and um, how these things were done. So um, basically, this is uh, when I acquired my foundational knowledge. Then, sorry. Sorry, Gabriella, maybe we can um, take a step back. I mean, it it sounds like uh, this seemed to you to be a very uh, futuristic, forward-looking career path. But for our audience, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what exactly is Theranostics. So Theranostics is um, you take an agent which has a specific target. So let's say for neuroendocrine cancers, you're looking to somatostatin receptors. And when you see this target, this agent binds into it and sends a signal. And the signal, we're able to see where the signal is sent from. So when you use the same agent that you detect a specific cell, 
and then you bind into another agent which now has a different behavior and is basically a radiation therapy agent and you inject the same agent in your vein, it again binds into the tumor cell that you're targeting and now it destroys the tumor cell. So the concept of being able to use a diagnostic biomarker and translate that into a therapeutic agent, that's when you get to the theranostics, that's how um, you get into this uh, theranostics concept, when you use the exact same molecule to look and to treat a certain pathology or disease. And so, you know, that seems to play into this whole concept that we've talked about on the show previously about, you know, targeted therapies. Usually we talk about targeted therapies for uh, chemotherapy or immunotherapy where we're looking at a particular biomarker. But here it sounds like you're delivering radiation with the same kind of concept. Is that right? Yes, that is exactly right. So this is a targeted therapy. So you choose your target and uh, there are a lot of these targets being developed in the pipeline. And um, each specific cancer usually will have a specific target that you want to reach. And the idea is to always hit targets which are... um, present in cancer cells, but not in normal body cells. So as we move forward into more personalized and uh, better precision therapies, where when we talk about these words, we're talking about things that will target the diseased cells and not the normal cells. And again, then you use this target and you bind into an agent that is capable of delivering radiation and this radiation goes inside the vein. It doesn't come from outside of your body as when patients go for radiation therapy. It's really injected into the blood, just like a blood draw you inject into an IV or when you have an infusion. And then this travels throughout your bloodstream and it reaches a target to bind and deliver the radiation in a very precise way and very controlled way in the exact location that you're targeting. And this is really where a lot of things are trending because we're tar- we're, we're looking into disrupting the cancer processes without influencing the normal cellular process. And so when we think about that, I mean, on the one hand, you think, gosh, this may really reduce side effects because you are minimizing the dose that you're giving to normal tissues. So presumably you will have less um, of the side effects that are associated with treating normal tissues. On the other hand, um, the concept of delivering radiation through a vein, albeit in a targeted way, may induce some other side effects. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about the side effect profile of, of this kind of modality? Sure, yes, that is exactly the point. Uh, when you deliver something in the blood, you have a target, but not always the target is only expressed in tumoral cells 
or not only the target ends up in only tumorous cells. For example, the kidney filtrates the blood. So when you deliver these radiation therapies in the vein, eventually you will have radiation agents crossing through your kidneys. So there are side effects related to where the cells circulate and to other locations that also express this type of um, target that uh, is present in whatever therapy you're using. So for example, the bone marrow uh, receives a certain dose of radiation and we control that. We know the exact dosage which is toxic for the bone marrow. And we always, uh, when we're looking into a patient who is a candidate for these therapies, we have to make sure that the bone marrow is uh, um, functional enough to receive that. And the other issue usually is kidney function, which uh, we know that uh, there, as the radiation circulates into the blood, there is a part of it that... Um, will end up in the kidney. So we control for that. We make sure that the function of the kidney and the marrow are within as normal as possible or within acceptable range to have these therapies. So usually the um, side effects are really different from uh, traditional chemotherapy, as uh, I, I just mentioned. Yeah. And different from traditional radiation therapy as well, because radiation therapy, as you had mentioned previously, is is generally given from the outside. So oftentimes when we give radiation, um, there are skin changes and so on and so forth. You would think that a lot of that uh, would not be present when delivering radiation from the inside, right? Yes, that's accurate. Um There is a very hypothetical risk of you having um, an infiltration as you deliver these therapies. So there's a little leakage around the vessel that happens with this high-dose radiation. But usually we're very careful. We always test the veins. We observe as the therapy is ongoing that to make sure uh, there's no fluid extravasating from the veins. So usually this is not, this is a very, very rare complication to have any cutaneous effect, and that would really be related to the infusion itself. But usually that's not the problem. And then um, for radiation sometimes, for example, if you're radiating the lungs, you can have the heart very close to the lungs and you can have some kind of damage to the heart, which is for us when we're doing intravenous, that's not really a problem of the anatomy of where things are. The radiation we deliver doesn't travel very far. These particles travel very, very small range and um, they really, uh, from where they bind, they, the effect of them is really very local. So um, adjacent organs are usually not a problem. So it sounds like, you know, this is really uh, potentially a, a wonderful way of delivering radiation. If you can spare adjacent organs, you can spare a lot of the cutaneous uh, side effects that we see with traditional radiation. And as you mentioned before the break, many cancers these days have 
potential targets and more and more are being discovered and developed every day. But um, is this really something that is being offered uh, for all kinds of cancers? Does it have a role in particular types of cancers? And or is this something that is still kind of working its way through clinical trials? Or is this actually something that's ready for prime time? So the first therapy that was approved for neuroendocrine cancers in the United States happened in 2018. So this is something that's been widespread in or commercially available for four years now. So it's a new technology, even though there has been um, other uses in elsewhere in the world, particularly Europe and Australia have been uh, leading uh, places for these therapies. Here, it's not been uh, widely used for many, many years. But um, as we move into more knowledge of uh, this latest therapy, we are just uh, expanding their use. So usually how these work is they get approved into the end of cycle of therapy of a disease when patients don't have a lot of therapy options. And then uh, we then start working the way back into looking how these therapies do earlier in the disease cycle. And then by understanding that a little better, that's how these get more widely spread. So we'll pick up this conversation, but first we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the role of Theranostics with my guest, Dr. Gabriella Spielberg. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their survivorship clinic is available to educate survivors on the prevention, detection, and treatment of complications resulting from cancer treatment. SmiloCancerHospital.org. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 200,000 cases of melanoma will be diagnosed in the United States this year, with over 1,000 patients in Connecticut alone. While melanoma accounts for only about 1% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths, but when detected early, it is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Gabriella Spielberg. We're talking about theranostics and clinical trials for GI cancers. And right before the break, Gabriella, you were starting to tell us about how um, theranostics and, in fact, many therapies find their way into clinical practice. So you started by saying that usually these are, you know, looked at in the setting of uh, situations where individuals may not have other options, and then gradually they kind of work them 
the, their way um, into not being uh, something of last resort, but uh, being more mainstream in terms of uh, practice. So can you kind of pick up the conversation there and tell us a little bit more about um, how Theranostics is finding its way into clinical practice, where it's still in clinical trials. You mentioned prior to the break that uh, this really started uh, with neuroendocrine tumors and was approved back in 2018. So is it now the case that everybody with neuroendocrine tumors are being offered Theranostics or is it still kind of a niche thing? So one of the things to realize uh, even before that is the administration of these therapies are complex. They require a multi-specialty clinical team and not everywhere that's available. So whenever you have that available and you have cancers that have indication to therapy, that's when these usually are more used or if patients are referred to cancer uh, centers, which have specifically lines of therapies. Um, at the moment for GI cancers, these are uh, available for gastroenteropancreatic cancers. For example, for bronchial carcinoid or more rare types of uh, neuroendocrine cancers, these are not uh, on-label FDA approval therapies. However, there are initial experiences of places who have used them on clinical trial basis or off-label use. So every patient is a different uh, setting of uh, findings and exams and genetic mutations and information, really. And each cancer develops in a different way from another. So you won't find one cancer that has the exact genetic profile as another. So these have to be looked in a very individualized way. And I think that's one of the big challenges is always to pinpoint who is going to who is going to really benefit from these therapies. So patient selection is a big, uh, it plays a very important role in, in who can really get these therapies. These uh, patients usually are discussed in multidisciplinary tumor boards, which are meetings where multiple specialty of doctors come together to look at something and come up with a team opinion of what is the best approach. Um, these are not usually patients with very initial staging of disease or very early. These are patients who have had a story, who have had disease for a while, or when they discover they have disease, it's not really very localized. So, um, any type of uh, systemic therapy for with uh, teranostics at the moment, that's how it's been used. So um, it's made its way prime time for GI specifically, but uh, it's not yet widespread for every single type of neuroendocrine cancer. We're not there yet. Um, there's a lot of pipeline development into which better receptors or targets we should use. And uh, as of this year, 2022, 
This was recently approved for prostate cancer, another agent, but the same concept. So, so it sounds like, first off, there are certain cancers um, that uh, are approved for theranostics and others that are not. Why is that? I mean, if so many cancers have targets. And, you know, as a breast cancer surgeon, I'm thinking about uh, certainly breast cancer has a number of targets that we use all the time in terms of ER and PR and HER2. Um, When we think about uh, all kinds of other cancers, there are similar uh, markers. Um, What is it about some markers that make them good candidates um, for theranostics and makes other markers and other cancers not? Well, so specifically for breast cancer, I think uh, we will get there. Um, We just need uh, a little time. So all these processes require something called radio labeling, which means you have to attach a radioactive particle into these targets. And radio labeling is a difficult process that not always works with any target you need or want, but there is a lot of work being done for ER and HER2 targeting for imaging. So it's bringing all these pieces of the technology together to make a specific agent a good candidate for a theranostic spare is what's hard. So there will be, it's just this technology is very new. If you think about it, it was first approved in the US four years ago, and here we are. Four years later, we have a second one in the market and there's multiple others in the pipeline. And I think also molecular imaging requires a, a lot of structure. So you have to have a radiochemist, you have to have uh, sometimes a cyclotron, which is where you generate these uh, radioactive particles. They have a half time, which means that they decay every one hour, five hours, or 10 hours, six days, depending on the agent. Half of what you generated is just gone. You don't have it anymore. So these technologies are difficult to develop and are hard to... um, join a big team to work on something. So until we get there, it's just going to take a while, but it doesn't mean that the cancers are not suitable. It's just the time that the technology needs to get to deployment into clinical practice and um, widespread use. At the moment, we don't have yet any of the newer alpha therapies such as actinium. But the difference between these other therapies that we're looking at and what's currently approved, lutetium, which is a beta emitter, is basically how much damage to the tissue surrounding them they can make. And alpha therapies are much higher energy which means they have a destruction power, which is higher than lutetium. So these are expected also to revolutionize the market and how these therapies are used and approached. 
because what's currently available, lutetium, which is a beta, doesn't destroy or shrink the tumor as much as we were hoping or we would like. So there is also this um, concept that is an evolving field. This is not a mature field at all. Um, there's a lot of knowledge uh, that we're still gaining from the deployment of these therapies. The prostate cancer therapy specifically was initially approved for patients who failed uh, taxane-based therapy, and yet there were results published from a trial just recently showing that even in patients that don't fail therapy but have a metastatic disease, they do have a benefit on them. So oncology trials are trials that uh, take long for you to gather information enough to understand what really is happening. And on that on that point, you know, in thinking about uh, the role of theranostics, is it your perception that eventually these will replace external beam radiation? So standard radiation will now be given with uh, the more targeted intravenous radiation of theranostics. And and if you if you believe that that's where the field is going, do we have the clinical trial data to suggest? that uh, theranostics is equally, if not more, efficacious than standard radiation therapy? Um, I don't think we're there yet. I think they have complementary use. When you're thinking about radiation, you're thinking about low or external traditional radiation, you're thinking about local therapy. When you're thinking about theranostics, you're thinking about systemic therapy which are two different concepts. So when someone has a small lung nodule and you want to target that one small nodule and there is no knowledge of widespread disease, uh, it's possible that external radiation would still be better than intravenous radiation because you have some um, side effects, but they're different from when we do intravenous radiation. And then when patients have disease that we know that are not localized, that they can't have surgery to remove, that just targeting one location is not gonna be enough, that's when you do systemic therapy and you use theranostics, which is the same concept as chemotherapy, except now we're using uh, radioactive chemotherapy, it's another term that's been used um, to treat these patients. So you're not really looking for a localized disease, but you're looking for systemic yeah. or uh, widespread. And finally, you know, you had mentioned that one of the things that's very important is thinking about patient selection. So are there particular patients um, that are better suited or not suited to radioactive chemotherapy or this intravenous radiation? Yes. So uh, one of the key concepts is that whatever target you are looking at, the patient has to have 
high expression of the target. So, for example, a neuroendocrine patient, when we do uh, lutetium dotatate specifically, which is the therapy that's approved, we are targeting somatostatin receptor um, 2, type 2. So if the disease they have doesn't really express significant density of those receptors, then those patients are not um, great uh, patients for that therapy, great candidates, because you're not going to be targeting whatever they have. So having the target overly expressed in the disease is really key here. And that's looked at by using the diagnostic agent with PET-CT. Dr. Gabriella Spielberg is an assistant professor of radiology and biomedical imaging at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.